That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. And welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I'm Ken Levine, your podcast host, and I am on vacation this week. So this is a best of episode, and we go way back, four years actually, to an interview that I did with Earl Pomerantz. And Earl Pomerantz, a terrific writer, worked on both the Gary Shandling shows for many years. He wrote on great MTM shows like the Mary Tyler Moore Show, Rhoda and Phyllis, etc. Also wrote on Taxi and on Cheers, created Major Dad. And unfortunately, a couple of years ago, Earl passed away. And uh, I want to remember him, and I want you to remember him. He was a lovely guy with tremendous insights, so I thought, if I'm going to do a best-of episode, why don't I do one that really is meaningful to me, and hopefully you'll get an awful lot out of it. So here again is my interview from 2018 with the late Earl Pomerantz. Well, the current Vogue in comedy is to be edgy, you know, if you don't offend somebody, then you haven't done it right. <laughs> and yet you have had a very long and illustrious career and none of your comedy, thinking back all through the years, none of your comedy has ever been mean-spirited. It's what I do. <laughs> it's, I'm not particularly... I, I have moments of mean-spiritedness, but not in scripts and... You know, why Why bring darkness to people? You know, it's a comedy who's an invitation to forget about your life and uh, enjoy the silliness of what what's being provided to you. I don't mind having a point of view or an attitude. Right. But uh, I, 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 I almost, I almost never, if I do something and I, it's like a mean person, in, like in my blog, I'll go in brackets. Name a mean person of your choice here. <laughs> I, it's like I'm the opposite of name jokes uh-huh. because I don't you know, pick a guy and the guy's like reading my blog and go, hey, why is he slamming me? I'm just watching, I'm just reading a blog or I'm just watching a TV show. Suddenly my name gets, my children are, what, dad, are you awful? Yeah. Goes, no, I thought, this writer thought I was awful. I'm okay. So, I, you know, there are people who, who for whom that's their style. Uh, and, you know, my agent... 25 years ago said, start getting edgy. He was, he was telling me, you know, the door is <laughs> He coming. saw it coming, huh? He saw it coming, and, and I couldn't do... My basic premise is, you are what you are, you do what you do. 
And if you do that the best you know how, that's the best you can do. But I've seen writers try to contort themselves into a style that's more popular than the one that perhaps got them right. through the door. Right. They can't do it. Nobody can do them better than them. So you, you may as well focus on doing the best you you can do. And that's what I've always done. And there's also an awful lot of humanity in whatever you write. I mean, you really do well, tend you. to write about about characters. I do. And and when I won the Humanitas Prize, so you're yeah. right. <laughs> so they wouldn't lie. Those are priests voting. And, and, they, and they, you're they, Jewish. I, I, yeah, they and they gave it to me. Well, how couldn't they not? They, they gave it to me. I mean, there's a lot of Jewish writers. They gave it to me anyway. But I remember receiving that prize and thinking, why are they giving people a prize for writing like human beings? That's what we're supposed to do. Uh -huh. So it felt like you were getting a prize for doing... Oh, the normal thing that writers normally do, which is explore human behavior and, and interaction, relationships, and uh, find something um, worthwhile about it. So that just seemed like a normal thing. So when I when that happened, I was just like, you know, I'll take the money, but I don't understand what this why <laughs> why they're doing it. So what's your writing process in in doing what in writing a script? It's been a while, but I uh -huh. I. I uh, it's like riding a bike. You you remember. I don't... I, I, well, I mean, I, I do writing every day, five days a week. And uh, I meditate in the morning so my brain will calm down. Uh -huh. And then I go in and I do it. So when you write a script, you're fairly disciplined? You well, work you know, we, each we've, day? We've done the thing. Uh, you know, we, when working on shows, you have a meeting with the producers and you, you lay out the story. And then you go home and write an outline where you add whatever your contribution is. And then they tell you, didn't you listen at the meeting? We don't want what you got. <laughs> we want what we told you. Didn't you write it down? I said, well, yeah, okay, I'll do that. So then you stick to whatever it is that they're focusing on and you write a script and then you fix the script. But yeah, I'm, I'm disciplined in that, in that uh, I, I don't get distracted and I don't get blocked very much ever, I don't think. You just... Uh, you don't wait till the last minute. Uh, you know, when I started out, I used to get two weeks to write, and I had one week to be scared and then one week to do it. So the first <laughs> week I'd go, ah, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and those shows, I'd go like, those guys are good, and now me? So I just, I just tried to do the best I knew how, but at the beginning I would be really like, I may not be able to do this. And then I'd do it. So, <laughs> but then the next one you'd have the same fear. Almost always, until later, you know. Until later, and a lot of times, you know, when when we wrote shows like uh, Late Line and stuff, there was no time f for anxiety. Right. You know, we were always behind, and we and we so we'd sit down in three or fours, and we'd work out the script together, and we'd be just the, the personal element was no longer uh, a, a, a factor. You were just professionally doing your job. At the beginning, I would be terrified. You know, there's always Canada and snow if I wasn't successful. Uh -huh. So that was, the, that was the thing they kept me. I, I don't want that. So, you know, that's where I come from. People may not know I was born in Toronto. You were working at MTM yeah. back when it was known as Camelot for Writers. And this was the 70s. And you had what I thought was the world's greatest job because, you know, it's great to be on staff of a show. But the downside of that is you're working a million hours. Right. And you had a, a position there 
where you just got to write scripts right. for all the various shows. I didn't get to. I, 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 I kind of, in a, in a flurry of insanity, demanded to. Okay. I was work, they, I wrote a Spec Mary, which they made, and uh, they put me as a story editor on Phyllis, which was a new show. And those, those shows only had like two people on staff. Yeah, back in those days, right. yeah. And, mm-hmm. and Ed Weinberger and Stan Daniels were producing three shows at the same time. <laughs> so you barely saw them. And I'd, I'd go to the, I'd write a script, and then Cloris Leachman would show up two hours late, and you know say bad things about the script. And I'd go like, this isn't a good job. I want to be here, but I don't want to do this. Uh-huh. And so I went into Weinberger, and I said, I want to do this thing where I write eight scripts a year. And, and Mary Tyler Moore at that time had Newhart, they had Mary, they had Rhoda, they had Phyllis, they had Doc, they had. A whole bunch of shows. Tony See, Randall. Tony Randall later. You. So yeah. you could rotate around. And, and, and I literally would knock on doors and say, you want me to help you? they say, yeah, come on in. It would be Hugh Wilson or, or Gary Goldberg or whoever was producing that show or uh, Patchett and Tarsus. And I'd go and work for them. And then I'd write a script, go home at 4 o'clock. I had an office. One had a shower in it even. It was like a, actually a dressing room. <laughs> but it was it was the biggest office I ever had till later. And... uh it was the best job for me because I was single, therefore my financial requirements were zero. And I had a, I had a, I loved driving onto the lot before the security thing, you know, where you right, could just yeah. go mm-hmm. and wave and they'd mm-hmm. say, yeah, you don't look like a killer. And they just let you on. And I'd go home at four o'clock and people would be staying till two in the morning. And I'd go, that doesn't seem like fun to me. So I had enough money and I had a creativity and a range. So I, cause I didn't have to work on just one show. I could jump all over the place, and I had lots of fun. And people were happy to see me because they were <laughs> tired and I wasn't. So, so they I think were, they'd resent you. No, well, they might, but I was like the sixth man. You know, I would be like show up and, and and bring some rejuvenation to the process. So it was it was that was my best job. Then, unfortunately, I got ambitious, and, and that was not a good idea. But let me say one thing. Um, before my time, in the 50s and 60s, when people wrote comedies, it was possible with 39 episodes and a small production staff for freelance writers to make a really good living just being freelance writers. That's true. They didn't have to move up the ladder. They didn't have to do the things that they were never good at in the first place. Writer doesn't mean you're a good producer. Producer doesn't mean you're a good showrunner. And none of that stuff is connected except in the, in the minds of uh, agents and people who just want to move up because they've done something already and want to see what else there is, which ultimately I did. But I never had as much fun as I did in the three years at MTM doing uh, eight scripts a year. Now, you came to a crossroads in 1975. Mm-hmm. Lauren Michaels offered you a job on the original Saturday Night Live, Correct. and you decided not to take it. How I just, come? First of all, Lauren Michaels was my brother's partner in Canada. They were writers and producers and comedians. And they did specials in Canada, and I wrote for them. Then they split up. Lorne came to L.A., and I'd written something for one of his shows that he showed to Lily Tomlin. And she said, I want him on my special. So that was my first job down here. And you won an Emmy for that, did you? Uh, The first one, the Muppets won an Emmy. And the second one, we were beaten by a piece of felt. Uh But the the (laughs) second one, we won an Emmy. We were nominated both times. Uh, anyway, Lauren brought me down to do that revised version of that little film. And, and then I did only shows that he produced. Whatever he did, I did a Flip Wilson special. I did a Hollywood Palladium special. All these variety shows that I wasn't particularly great at, except for Lily Tomlin. 
where I was good. And then he said, we're going to New York. And I said, I'm not going. I've been here nine months. I love the sun. I love Los Angeles. Um, I said, I don't want to go. I don't even know where that came into my head to say I don't want to go because the only guy who'd ever hired me was now leaving town, which left me totally <laughs> starting over in my career, except I had some reputation because of Lily Tomlin. And I made up an idea for an episode of Mary Tyler Moore just when I was falling asleep one night, just to salvage myself because Saturday Night Live had a six-month uh, pre-programming setup thing. Right. They didn't know what they were, so they needed six months to figure out what to be. Lauren would constantly call me saying, when are you coming to New York? And I'd say, I'm not coming. And I didn't have a job. So I sat there and <laughs> somehow my brain bailed me out. I showed this two-page outline to uh, two writers, two women who'd worked on, on, uh, on Rhoda, but also on Lily Tomlin. So I knew them. Banta and Nardo. They were real names, not just Yeah, Fantasy. Gloria Banta Elaine and Nardo. Elaine, yeah. And they said, this is a good thing. You should submit it to Mary Tyler Moore, a two-page outline. I had no idea that you had to write a spec script. I didn't know anything about half hours. <laughs> so I got my agent, who was this woman who ended up being this famous crazy woman who represented Jay Leno in the in the in the wars, the, the late night wars. Right. Helen Gorman, but she was Helen Kushnick. Uh -huh. And she got it to Ed Weinberger, who was the producer of Mary. And um that outline was developed with Ed and Stan and me into an, an actual produced episode. That was very rare that even a spec script is rarely produced into a... I mean, it's incredibly rare. That's I mean, I got winning that. the lottery w rare. <laughs> <laughs> so can I tell one other sure. side of the story? Sure. They helped me develop this into an episode. It was during hiatus. They were producing two pilots, so they were in town. Jim Brooks, who created Mary Tyler Moore, was out of town on vacation. When Jim came back, they said, oh, we got this great new writer. He said, yeah, what's he doing? Well, we gave, we, he came in with this idea. Uh, Mary thinks uh, a priest is leaving the priesthood because he's in love with her. And we sent him away to write the, uh, write the first draft. He, Jim Brooks said, I hate that idea. Call him up right now and tell him to stop. And they said, well, you know, we have to pay him for the draft anyway, but let's see how it turns out. And it turned out okay, and therefore I got a career in half-hour comedy. <laughs> I just wanted to tell that to show how close you can come to, to being the guy who just drove me over here who wants to be stuff but isn't. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's that close. You said winning the lottery. It was not only winning the lottery because they, they took the idea and helped me develop it, but that Jim Brooks was out of town and didn't say no before I got to start writing it. That's true. That's stories. That's what people who want to be in show business need to hear about, is that it's been close for all of us. None of, I mean, you can, if you want, tell your own version of, I almost didn't get anywhere. Oh, exactly. But when given the opportunity... You delivered. You turned in a good draft. If your draft wasn't any good, yes. then you'd be the right. guy and that's driving the, that's somebody exactly, today. Well, I can't drive, but I did something. <laughs> that's the answer to success is all about who you know. Who you know will get you in the door, but it won't keep you in the door. Right. So who you know is fine. It's excellent. I knew Lorne Michaels, but I'd worked for him. He didn't know me because I was his cousin. He knew me because I'd written this thing on his show that Lily Tomlin liked, and he thought it was good enough to show to her as a writing sample for me. So he was more or less my agent starting out. And, and well, because I never worked on Saturday Night Live, he's never really been friendly. You know, I haven't, I've spoken to him once in 44 years. Wow. I, think, I was going to ask you about that, I think what he your felt relationship betrayed. was like. Uh -huh. I think he felt, uh, 
You know, he felt like he'd done this stuff for me, and this, that was true. But I, I couldn't go there. I didn't, and, and, I'm, and in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't go there because that show was another kind of show. I could have creatively probably done it, but for a while. But the time, the, the writing a show in one day and, and all that urgency, uh, I don't think I would have liked that process at all. Yeah. And I don't think I would have been that helpful to him. But he really wanted me to be part of that, and I let him down. Okay. Well, you finally got a chance to do some of your own shows. And, you know, people talk about write what you know and uh, doing series that are loosely autobiographical. You sold a show that was so much you and your life that you even had your living room recreated on the soundstage. Talk a little bit about that. That's called Family Man. I, I, I worked on Cosby. And I'd been the first executive producer. I was there for the first seven episodes, and then I burnt out and went home. And Brandon Tartikoff at the time, who was NBC president, said, do your version of Cosby. Do your family. I said, okay. He told me that when I was doing warm-up man on Cheers. I was On the second year of Cheers, I was a warm-up man. So he saw me during the show, and he said, come over here. I want to tell you, do that. So I did it. I did Family Man, Uh and it was based on a writer and a wife. And a, a biological child and a, and, and a stepchild and all the stuff that's part of me. And I did build that set. And the front of my house, was, a, was a, it wasn't like a My Three Sons on the, on the Universal lot. It was a facade of the front of the family man house. Because I thought, if you're going to be original, it's the same as I said before about the best me is me. Uh, if I'm going to have an original set, not built by some set designer why not do the one that nobody else has, which is the one in my house? So they, they, they took pictures. They actually went and took Polaroids off the back of my house because I have an ocean view off the back. Oh, and they built backdrop. this huge backdrop. The, you know, the big one. You yeah. know, the one that goes right across. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was the backdrop of my actual house. So I thought, and more importantly, I guess, every story, I only got to do 11 episodes. Every story was a story that happened to me either as a kid or as a parent. So I wanted that kind of uniqueness. Nobody could compete with me as me. So those were the stories I told. Was I guess this a the multi-camera? show was a big hit. Was this a multi-camera show? This was... Was, that's where I started to make mistakes. It was a multi-camera show, but it was on tape. So I, I said, I want more sets, therefore no studio audience. Uh-huh. So it was almost a soap opera comedy. I mean, the actors didn't know it was funny until we screened it in front of an audience, and the audience actually laughed. And they went, oh, it was good. But they didn't know because there, was no, there wasn't that, that, you know, the best, the best feedback in the world, which is the live audience. I didn't want three sets. I wanted seven sets. So basically, in my heart, I wanted to do a single-camera show, but they weren't doing them back then. Right. So, and I, I, and they were more expensive back then because it was before digital. They used actual film. I guess Mash was really expensive in, in its day. Yeah. Well, although we made those episodes really quickly, uh-huh. like three days. So that now, was, now they take five days. That was the way to, three. to to compensate for how expensive because we were guerrilla filmmaking. Yeah. Yeah. And, and at the time, I think you were one of the only one camera shows on television. I think we were the only. So one how did show. it was because. Fox did the movie mash that they did it? Yeah. Because you couldn't sell that without no, the movie. No, exactly. Every yeah. show was either on film or on tape. And tape was cheaper than film. And one camera film was more expensive than multi-camera film. 
So I wanted to do the I wanted to tell the stories that needed the sets that were needed. I didn't want the sets to tell me how to tell the stories. I wanted the story to tell me how to tell the story. Who played you? Uh, Richard Libertini. Okay. Who was very funny and very good. Okay. And uh, oh, I got really in trouble with the um, with the set decorator because he was set decorating this girl's eleven year old girl's uh, bedroom. Uh-huh. I brought her in to check it out and see if it if it had. Legitimacy, <laughs> and he was pissed. He's, I'm a professional. Were you going to bring your baby in now? Look at the baby's room. Because I had a, I had a two year old daughter. He didn't like it, but I said, "What's wrong with that? It's right to do it as truly as you possibly can. And if you have an 11 year old to to pass an evaluation, I say go for it." Now, did your wife uh, sign off on, on she didn't all want of any this? Part of it. I, okay, I was I was going to say because you know my wife always claims that when I refer to her in travelogues or the blog yeah. or whatever, that she's just a character. <laughs> <laughs> she's just this Got created it. character yeah. in my life. Well, they're both in the therapy business, and, and they also need the confidentiality. So even on my blog, I try to keep her out of it as much as possible at her request. Right. But yeah, she is, a, she is a character. But the line, her original line got into the pilot of Family Man, which is uh, someone asks, what's it like uh, living with a comedy writer? She'd go, we laugh all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was her payback. For- so did you guys ever have an argument and in the middle... She stopped and said, I don't want to see this on TV. Uh, I don't remember because the show, it, it show didn't last that long. So if that it was had, on NBC? It, it's, it, NBC ultimately passed on it, although they took the title. It was called Our House, and they put it on another NBC show. Oh. So I, I, I thanked them for that. It ended up being on, on uh, ABC, but like after the season, like April or something like that. And there were like seven episodes. I wrote 11 scripts. I imagine if, I, if I'd had a successful show, I would have had to expand the concept beyond what happened to me as a child and as a grown-up. But I didn't think about that because I originally wanted to tell fresh stories. And that's the only way I knew how. Otherwise, it's your crazy neighbor moves in because they're fumigating his house. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, it, you can look at almost every series and ultimately they do the same stories. You know, in-laws are coming. Where's their present that we threw out? Right. You know, <laughs> I could... I. I I, you know, I had this kind of uh, embarrassing word, purity. Do the I, I wanted it to be pure. I wanted it to be original and fresh. Do the seven episodes still exist somewhere? In my they garage somewhere, but they oh. could be dusty. Uh huh. They're they're on cassette. You know, those things don't don't stand don't right. endure very long. Right. You yeah, should digitize somewhere. them. You know, my past doesn't mean anything to me. I did it, and I bought a house. You know, I did it, I did it the best I knew how. But I, I, I don't have any nostalgia. You miss, my favorite show that I made up was Best of the West, which lasted one season. Right, which was a great show. It was a, it was a, a Western, yeah. multi-camera show. Exactly. We had a bear in the, on stage, uh-huh. a giant bear. It was lovely. It was so much fun. We had a wonderful cast. And and people liked it, and then the network put it on against Magnum, or some some other show that was being oh Dallas uh-huh. first oh, Magnum wow. then Dallas, uh-huh. and, and I went, I'm in the I'm in like you know a, a supermarket, and all the 
all the magazines have pictures of stars of the show that are on against my show uh-huh. on the cover uh-huh. by the checkout stand. Right. And none of mine. Uh-huh. So I went, I, don't, I, I better not uh, buy too much. You know, this, <laughs> this isn't going to last. But I, that, was, that was the only series that I made it as funny as I knew how, but also used a lot of research, a lot of trueness that I could find about the West to find comedy that, you know... Um, F Troop didn't do. It wasn't goofy. It was it was another thing. It was basically Mary Tyler Moore in the West, you know, some kind of uh, similar sensibility. So that's what I did. You know, it seems very difficult for a period piece to work as a comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's happened from time to time. You mentioned F Troop way back in the 60s. And right. Certainly MASH, right. period piece. But for the most part, it's it's really a hard sell. Yeah, 70s yeah. show, I guess, did okay, too. Yeah, because that was the premise. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah, no, it was a hard sell. And I think networks, ultimately, if they don't like a show, will find a way to get it uh, canceled. Oh, they, easily. Yeah, get, they can easily kill a show. It's another thing I tell writers when I meet them sometimes, is you'll pitch an idea for a series or something like that, and they'll say, well, you know, we're not crazy about X. But go ahead, give it a try. And you write the outline in the first draft and the second draft, and you're really excited, and you're making it come alive, and you bring it in, and I said, yeah, we're going to pass. Why? X. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> the thing they hated at the beginning is the thing they hate at the end. Uh-huh. So why they waste your time you know, developing something they never wanted to do in the first place? Uh, I don't know if they still do that, but you always talk oh, about sure your they, blog. they do it more. <laughs> you talk about how much more networks have control. Yeah. When I did Major Dad, which was the... Uh, lasted four years, was the most successful show I ever did. Um, the the guy who was the head of CBS at the time, on pilot, on the night before the pilot said, I'd be cast a leading lady. And here's the guy who's going to decide whether that show's going on the air, telling me that I haven't got a chance. Fortunately, we had one of the greatest pilot filming nights of all time, and he didn't ha- he had... He had to accept the leading lady and the uh-huh. show. But that's what happened even back then when they didn't have total control. So he could say things like, if I were you, I would, which is code <laughs> for don't be a schmuck. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm putting this on the schedule or I'm not. So there was always a network element of uh, I wouldn't know what to do now. It seems agents must have a horrible time now because it's never over pitching a show. There's 5,000 places to pitch. So you have to, you know, they, it's not three places and go and, you know, take a nap. Right. Except now it's, well, that's a Netflix show. Uh-uh. That might be a Hulu show. <laughs> I don't think it's Amazon right. Prime. It might be Fox. Right. And I knew a guy who, who, who mistakenly pitched the wrong way to the wrong place. He, uh-huh. he was told that, what you just said. Uh-huh. And, then, and then he just forgot where he was. And he got it turned down because he forgot how to pitch it. Uh-huh. So it was all about they developed different pitches for the for the sure, same show, yeah. uh, based on what the uh, you know the interests and, and, and tastes are. I don't know. I'm 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 old and I'm out of it. <laughs> but I still I still wish I could drive through the gate. You know, just uh, just fun. There was there was this one time I went after September 11th. I went to Fox for a meeting, and I drove up, and this uh, guard woman gave me this big smile. And I went, oh, I don't know. I drove up. I gave her my, my ID, and the smile went away. And I thought, oh, I'm in trouble. I must look like a terrorist. And, I, and she said, uh, I said, what, what's the matter? Is there a problem? She said, no, no, I, I thought you were that comedian, Adam Shandling. 
<laughs> I was like this generic Jew person <laughs> who wasn't the person she expected. So I was Adam Shandling the last part, time I went through a gate. You worked with Gary Shandling on both of his shows. I did. Talk a little bit about working with Gary. I'll, t- I'll do it through the, a, a story. I, I, um, I went, even though I had worked on the first show with Gary Shandling, so he wanted to interview me for Larry Sanders. I don't know why. I was the same person. <laughs> and I went up to uh, Studio City. He was editing an episode of, of Larry Sanders. He called me and come on in to the editing room. And he started asking me, editing, what should I do? Should I do a long shot? And I said, I don't want to do this. If you want to interview me for the job, let's do it separately. I don't, I'm not, and I went home. Uh-huh. And, then, and, and, then, and then he called me back up, sorry, and I said, we have breakfast. So we're going to have breakfast in, on, uh, on Montana Avenue in a place. And he's about 10 or 15 minutes late, not terrible. And he comes in and he says, sorry, I'm late. I just broke up with my girlfriend. I said, oh, that's terrible. When did that happen? He said, nine months ago. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's Gary Shanley. He told, I don't know if that was a joke or not a joke. Uh-huh. And that's what made his show so special is that the difference between comedy and, and tragedy was, was, you know, tiny. And, and so you didn't know. You could never tell whether he was putting you on or whether he was doing a joke or whether. And, and that was the element of Larry Sanders that made it so uh, original is that the comedy and the tragedy were, were totally interwoven. and You couldn't tell, barely tell the difference, which made it feel truer than joke driven shows. Was it hard to write? I didn't write scripts because they, they did foul language and I can't do it. Once he made me read one of the scripts when the actors, when one of the actors wasn't there and I had to read this stuff and I was like red <laughs> as a beat reading. I was a good reader, but, I, but the, the, the dialogue was... So I always came in one or two days a week to make the stories focus and maybe pitch jokes for character situation, which is what I ultimately did after my series work was over is I would help people make their shows, in my view, better by working really hard. Even didn't matter what the show was. I'd read the script over and over till I could find something that I could contribute that I thought would make it sharper and, and more uh, what they were intending. Now, you would read the script before? Yes. Because usually not Larry what, Sanders. They didn't no, have a Larry, script. Yeah, they didn't have script. But normally when they would bring in a consultant... He would come to an afternoon run-through at like 4 o'clock, mm-hmm. and then he would go back into the room with the writers, and he would help them punch up. He right. would sort of be a, a script doctor. Right. And, and I did that for many years on many shows. Uh, like you, I love that job. Right. But the difference between you and me is I would also get the script usually the morning of the, of the run-through. I never read it. I absolutely made a point never to read it it. because I wanted to see that run through with virgin eyes. Right. You know, Uh, uh, this was table reading. It wasn't run through. So it was before uh, that I would even uh, my last thing was according to Jim. I did it for two years, mostly because my agent was a showrunner's agent and he made them hire me. (laughs) And I would I would literally read the script on the weekend before the Monday reading three times looking for holes, looking for, for, for things that I could um, punch up uh, from a story perspective. Once in a while, I, there'd be jokes uh, that would be jokes related to telling the story, to shoring up the story or, or shortening, short-circuiting 
cutting page 11 or page 8. Uh-huh. And I would say you never need page 8. Yeah, you know, <laughs> this is a thing I, I have to mention, that Earl is known for page 8. <laughs> and he always maintains, and we have always found this to, to be <laughs> incredibly true, that if you have a script that's really long and you have to go back and you cut it, Earl contends that you can always just lift page eight. And so the first thing we would do was go to page eight, you know, to try to prove him wrong. And most of the time we'd go, God, you know, we really don't need the first half of this, you know. I'd I'd have fun reading any script, uh, trying to find a way to make it the best version of what they're trying to do as it could be. I I wouldn't try to turn it into what I would do because that's irrelevant. Right. And I could do that. I, I like I could do that today if I could do that today, if I could do one day of, of doing that. But I couldn't do it on one-camera shows because I don't understand them. I mean, a show like Modern Family does three stories a, an episode. That means you tell a story in seven minutes. I don't, I, that's a Fleer's Double Bubble cartoon. I don't know how to... <laughs> we, used to to do do, we used to do that on MASH. We used to do two to I three stories. I find it amazing. Yeah. Uh, because that's not how we did... The, the the multi-camera shows they were more more like a play. It was easier on Mash when we brought in freelance writers to just give them the outline hmm. and walk them through it, as opposed to explaining to them right. just what it is that we're trying to accomplish mm-hmm. here. You know, it's like we knew how to plot these right. things. We would do that work. Just hand them the cool. outline and, and well, walk and that them through because it, it is very difficult and tricky and unique. And keep it tight. I mean, yeah, that, that's really the tightest version of a show. Yeah. Um, I, here's something you mentioned sometimes because you always talk about multi-camera shows coming back, maybe or, or and then certainly there are more of them than there were at their at their least popular right. time. But I haven't seen a good one. I, I, I you know I've seen them, but I haven't seen one that was like to the level of when multi-camera shows were really good. I would agree with you. I, and I know that sounds like, uh, you know, hey, kids, get off my lawn. Right. But uh, no, I the guy I who drove me back, here said the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I look back oh, at, I gotta give at a tip. I forgot to do the shows tip. that we, uh, we wrote. And, um, you know, I think shows like Frasier and Cheers, yeah. Mary Tyler Moore Show, things like that, uh, stand the test of time so 40 years later. Do you later. think it's, you know, there was a time when people were really good at physical comedy and silent movies and stuff. Right. And then there was a time when they didn't do that so much anymore. Do you think there were just people who were good at it and then the generational shift happened and then they're good at something else, but they're not good at what they used to what Personally, used to be? I think it's that uh, our standards were higher. Our standards were higher. No I mean, I, I look at, at, at something like Big Bang Theory, which is very funny, but they'll do a show where in the first scene, Sheldon has a problem, mm-hmm. and he tells Leonard. And then in the next scene, he goes to Penny and tells her the problem. <laughs> and then the next scene, he's at work, and he tells the guys at work the problem. Right. And then the next scene, he goes to the comic book store, and he tells those guys the problem. <laughs> and there's different jokes along the way, right. but it does nothing to further the story. Right. And, and I think we were a lot tougher on the story uh-huh. and having endings be surprising and have a little more depth. I mean, a, a, 
Of the multi-camera shows that are out there, I think the best is Mom. I think they they yeah. try to to do that as well but they as they can. But they follow the parody of themselves, yeah. like, like most shows do ultimately. I, I watched Big Bang Theory and Modern Family at the beginning, and after a, a relatively short time compared to the regular audience, I went, I get this. I know what they're doing. I don't want to watch it anymore. And Mom was the same thing. I thought Mom was sensational at the beginning. But, it, but, but after a while, you do joke H, where you did joke A in the pilot. You right. know, it's just the, it, 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 I don't know what H is. H? It's, eight, it's the eighth carbon copy of the original really good joke. Right. I don't know how you get away from that other than bringing in new characters. Mary Tyler Moore did that all the time. They brought in Betty White or they brought, you know, people left, people came in. They kept it fresh. Cheers, obviously. They brought in a new uh, female lead. Um, people who are professionals like ourselves, you get tired of the formula. You see it sooner than than other people, and then you just you can't stay with it anymore. Right. So, so you let's now not blog. end on that. Let's end on something. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk about your fun. blog. Okay. You've been doing a blog now for forty-seven years. <laughs> when I started. My first paying job, of which I received $25 a week, was a weekly column in the Toronto Telegram, which was a major newspaper in Toronto. I could write anything I wanted for seven or 800 words. Forty years later, I'm doing exactly the same thing. I could, in certain ways, take certain uh, columns that I wrote in 1968 and 69, and they would fit not that terribly into my blog today. My perspective is not that different. My style, my comedic approach is not that different I'm a little more skillful now but so it's basically full circle I've been doing the blog ever since the strike what was it like 2007 which one I know the the one that happened the last one that happened yeah I think 2007 people were all in line with a stick walking around the studio with me Mm -hmm. talking about all the things they were doing and and I wasn't doing anything and then I knew you did a blog and I went well why don't I do that? You know, I wouldn't have to deal with actors. I wouldn't have to go anywhere. I wouldn't have to drive on the highway. Uh, and I talked to you, and we had lunch, and you came over to my house, and you set it up for me. And the coolest thing, I'm flattering myself, flattering myself at the moment. You said, what do you want to call it? And I had no idea you're supposed to call a blog anything. I didn't <laughs> know anything about blog. And I immediately said, just thinking. And that's what it's about. It's about anything that comes to my mind, from summer camp to writing and show business to I just came back from a week studying at um, Oxford University. I'm writing about that. Uh, I wrote about heart surgery when I had heart. I just write about whatever happens in my life, hopefully in a way beyond I had a sandwich and uh, the mayo was too thick. Okay. You know, just, Family man finally gets on the air. Yeah, in yeah in my own, in, with my own voice. Uh-huh. And maybe podcast in the future. I don't know. We'll, I don't know. How to we'll see do. how this works out. Well, for technologically, you I haven't got a I can barely turn on a fan. Uh-huh. So, you know, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just write what I think about with no network interference. That's the best part. Well, it's a great blog. I've been Thanks. plugging it for, for years. Oh, good. In fact, there are times when you and I will go back and forth mm-hmm. in our blogs discussing Because we don't always topic. agree. Yeah. 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 We, that, we have done that. Yeah. 
but we where couldn't do they work find up it? a feud. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Uh, you, where do they find it? On, on, the, on the computer. It's what, <laughs> no, no. What's the link? <laughs> uh, what does it mean? A link, what do you tell me? It's uh, it's just thinking. If you write just thinking in your thing, will it go there or no? <laughs> no. Tell you what. I don't tell know. you what. Go to Google. Type in Earl Pomerantz blog. It will take you to it, and you can just click onto it and then, you know, put it in your bookmarks. Or if you can go to my blog, uh, I have links along the side, one of which is Earl Pomerantz. Just click on that, and it will take you to his blog. I think it says Earl Pomerantz at blogspot.com. I think that's what it is. Okay, if that's like wrong, that. and you know what, you found out that it went offline. I didn't even know it. I was in England. Uh-huh. I don't know how that happened at all, but it's back. So <laughs> the Russians, uh, yeah, they hate me. Probably. <laughs> Earl, this was great. Thanks so much. All right, thank you. That was fun. Okay, that was my interview with the late Earl Pomerantz. Oh, I miss him so so much. Anyway, uh, thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister, Butler, Howard Hoffman, John Wolford, Bruce, and Jason Miller. If you want to get in touch with me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com is my email address. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also, I am on Twitter at Ken Levine, Instagram, Hollywood, and Levine. And I would appreciate if you uh, follow me on one of those social media hot spots. Anyway, new stuff again next week. Thanks so much for listening. See you soon. Hollywood and Levine. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.